0: At the age of 30, Jesus begins uh, his public ministry. He's going around teaching and preaching and and drawing a rather large following. Uh, He he begins to gain and and, and grow disciples. Um, And out of those disciples, there are two men uh, named James and John. And and they, they start to see where Jesus' life and ministry is headed. Meaning James and John get the sense or, or start to see that that Jesus is going to be glorified, they, they see it, they know it, they sense it because just being around him that they, they know that in the end that his life and his ministry is going to end in him being glorified, and so they go to him and, and they ask him a question. These, these two brothers approach Jesus and ask him this very interesting question they, they say Teacher, will, will you do anything we ask? Now, any wise man will tell you that if someone comes to you and says, Hey, can you do me a favor? You, you ask, what's the favor, <laughs> right? So James and John say, Hey, teacher, will you do anything that we ask? And, and he says, What is it that you ask of me? And, and, and they say, When you're glorified, can, can one of us sit at your right hand and, and can the other sit at your left hand? meaning we want to be glorified, we want to be praised, we want to be esteemed, we want everyone to see how great we are. As a matter of fact, have you seen how great we are? I mean, compared to the other guys, I mean, we're much smarter, we're better looking, we're more eloquent. So so would you just go ahead and give us what's rightfully ours, Jesus? Now, the, the scriptures record this, um, that at hearing this question, the other disciples become indignant or annoyed. You can imagine a conversation between them going something like this. Who do they think they are asking Jesus to have the seat of power? Who do they think they are? I mean, compared to me? I mean, really? If anybody's going to get the seat of power, it's going to be me. So, what Jesus does to all of his prideful um, and indignant disciples is gather them around himself. And, and he says, whoever will be great among you must be a servant. Whoever will be first must be a slave. For the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, so Jesus began to unpack for them this paradoxical truth of the kingdom of God. That if you're going to be first in the kingdom of God, if you're going to be highly esteemed and glorified and exalted in the kingdom of God in heaven, then here on earth we must make ourselves lowly servants. And and then he gave himself as the example. Look, the son of man, me, I I didn't come to be served, but I came to be a servant so much so that I'm going to give my life away. I'm going to give my life away as a ransom for many. Don't you guys get it? Don't you guys see how the kingdom of God works? The problem is, they didn't get it. They didn't see it. How do we know that? Well, because just days later, they enter into the Passover feast. John 13 records this. They go into the Passover feast, and they they go into the room to sit down and enjoy this celebratory meal with dirty, smelly feet. You see, in their custom, there was supposed to be someone uh, at the door. The lowest servant of the house was supposed to, as they entered into the house, they were supposed to get down and wash the feet of the disciples who had been walking on the streets of mud and dirt and where animals Yes, so they they had pretty dirty, nasty feet, and and so someone was supposed to be there. The lowest servant, that was the lowest servant's job to do this, but that servant wasn't there, and so the disciples enter in, and, and you can imagine the tension at the table as they sit down to eat, thinking, well, it probably should be him. That that guy should probably get around and wash everyone, I mean, certainly not me, as each one of them thought that to themselves. And so Jesus does the unthinkable. Jesus stands and he disrobes himself. He strips himself down and he takes a towel and he wraps it around himself and takes the bowl and goes from disciple to disciple to disciple humbling himself, taking the lowest place of a servant and washing the dirty, smelly feet of these incredibly, insanely prideful men. That the king of the universe stooped incredibly low to get down on his hands and his knees and to take the place of the servant and washed these disciples' feet. Now, Later on, we know that the disciples get it. He, he says to them after he has washed their feet, he says to them this, you see what I've done for you? Do that for each other. And they get it. They get it. How do we know they get it? Because uh, 12 dudes, 12 scared guys Right? 12 prideful guys totally shift gears and, and they blossom out this movement called Christianity. That 2.1 billion people on the planet today now call themselves Christians, and it was spawned from these men. Now, how, how, do, how do I know that that came from them getting that principle? Here is why because humility creates unity. And if they were going to go out and proclaim the gospel and start this massive movement known as Christianity, they had to be unified. So humility creates unity, and that unity created the movement. So in the text today, what we're going to see is a call for us to be unified. Unified for us to be unified. And how we get unified is by being a group or a mass of humble people. Look at the call to unity in Philippians chapter one, verse 27, if you have your Bible open, it's not gonna come up on the screen, but it says this, only let your manner of life be worthy. We looked at this last week. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you are absent, I may hear that, watch this, you are standing firm in one spirit, in one mind, striving side by side. Again, he's calling, striving side by side, one mind, one spirit, unified together, unified in this one advance, unified in this one goal, unified together, standing shoulder to shoulder, side by side, the body of Christ, together unified. That's his goal. And how he wants us to be that unified, how he wants us to get that unity, is by being a group of humble people So let me ask you, is there unity at your work, in your job? Is it it a group of unified people just just submitting to each other? Or or is it a group of people jockeying for position, telling stories of, of their grandeur and how great they are to make themselves look better? Is there unity in your home? For for many of you to describe your marriage as unified would be a far, far cry. Is there unity between you and your children? Is there unity between you and your father? Is there unity between you and your mother and your brothers and sisters? Are you living a life of unity? Paul wants that for the life of the believer. Paul wants us to to live lives that are unified with those around us. And especially, specifically here in this text, he wants the church body to be unified. So this week he will show them how to be unified how to be unified, okay? So here's my main idea. If you're a big idea person, here's my main idea for the whole sermon, my sermon in one sentence. Here we go. True unity, which advances the gospel, is only possible when we have a humble and selfless attitude, which is modeled after Christ and lived out meditating on his love for us. Okay, so, so true unity in the church. If Gospel Community Church is going to be unified, standing side by side, shoulder to shoulder, advancing the gospel, the only way that that is possible is for us to be a group of humble people, humble, selfless people, and seeing it modeled in Christ. Okay, so what's our example for humility? We, we look to Christ. And then we achieve it by meditating on his love for us, thinking constantly, constantly, I'm nothing without him. He is my everything. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna focus on Paul's goal. Okay? So, so we're gonna actually skip verse one. I promise we're coming back to it. You know me, I'm, I'm not gonna forget about it. We're gonna skip verse one, and I want us to see the end goal, the end game of humility, which produces unity. We're gonna focus on that. Then we're gonna look at the example of Christ, okay? And then we're gonna ask the how question. Okay, so he's gonna say, here's what I want you to do. Here's the goal. Look at Christ, he did it. And we go, okay, but how, how do we do what he did? We're gonna jump back to verse one, okay? And, and then we're, I hope, I'm praying, that we then soar out on the exaltation of Christ in the end of this text, okay? That, that's where we're headed today. You, you guys ready to go? okay. Verses two through four. Here's what he says. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Here's the command in the text. Let each one of you not only look to his own interest, but also the interest of others. So humble selflessness is essential for unity. Did you see that? He said, I want you to have the, the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord. The, the goal for him is that we be unified, and how we get unified is through being a humble people. Okay, so his idea of unity here isn't some type of... Uh, Hippies getting along, right? Just nice to each other. That, that's, not, that's not Paul's idea of, of unity here. Rather, what Paul is wanting us to see and wanting us to do is he wants them to be, to, to, to be united in their conviction and united in their affection. He, he wants them to be united in conviction. What, what's the conviction? The gospel is True. I want all of you to be united in your conviction that Jesus Christ has come, that Jesus Christ has lived, that Jesus Christ has died and resurrected, and that belief in him is the only way for salvation. That's the gospel, and he wants us to be unified in that conviction, but not only unified in the conviction, unified in the affection that the work that Jesus has accomplished gives us a deep love for him. I want you to be united in your affection, that we're a group of people who love Jesus. Listen, I don't want to be united in our style of worship. I I don't want to be united um, because we all read the ESV translation of the Bible, and it's the only one there is. I don't want us to be united by style of dress. I don't want us to be united under any other flag other than the flag of Jesus. And and that's what Paul is calling for, a, a unity and conviction, conviction of the gospel, a unity and affection that we that we love Jesus. And he knows, okay, again, that if they're unified in those things, that those people will be filled with joy, and Paul gets joy from their joy. That's why he says, complete my joy, being of the same mind, and so on and so forth. So, if he can get them unified in that, they'll be filled with joy and he'll get joy from their joy. So he says, Complete my joy, do these things. Do nothing from selfish ambition. (sighs) Do you hate being corrected? And are you determined to do it your way, even if it's a dumb way to do things? Do you hate being corrected? And are you often just determined to do things your way, even if it's the wrong way or a dumb way to do it? That, that's, that's selfish ambition. That, that's what that is. That's selfish ambition. This can also mean a desire to be superior to everyone around you. Okay? Th- this is what we call the one-upper. Okay? Whatever story you tell, they followed up with a story to where they did it bigger and better. It's like, I rented an RV and I drove across the United States. Oh yeah, I flew to Mars, (laughs) top that. It's it's just a a, a desire to be superior to everyone else around you. That selfish ambition to be seen, to be known, to be liked, to be well esteemed, to jockey for a position or to to put others down so that you look better. That's selfish ambition. Selfish ambition often starts fights to prove your worth. You find yourself doing that, getting into arguments or demanding your point and and pressing the issue to make everyone else see that you're right, that's selfish ambition. Wanting everyone to know how smart you are and and just pushing the point until everyone else concedes. That's selfish ambition, He, he says, don't do that don't be that way as a matter of fact, just lower yourself below other people and don't always fight to get your way all the time. It doesn't have to be your way all the time don't don't do anything out of selfish ambition don't don't let your brains work that way. Don't feel that way. In addition, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, okay? Do you need to get glory in everything? Are you afraid to let one of your good deeds go unrewarded? Do you guys see what I did? Did you see that cool thing I did? Did you see how nice I was? Did you see me help the old lady across the street? <laughs> did you see how much money I gave towards the building project? Okay. Did you see me pray with that guy? Did you see me? That's conceit wanting everyone to see how awesome you are. Are you slow to repent, and do you have a hard time seeking forgiveness? Are you slow to repent? You know you've messed up. You know you've you've totally blown it. Does it take you a while to just admit that and say, you know what? I I messed up here. I I, I totally blew it. I'm sorry. Are you slow to repent, And does it take you a really long time to to say, you know what? I've I've asked God to forgive me about these things, and I'm asking you to forgive me. That's conceit. That's conceit. In addition, does your heart often ask the question, what about me? (laughs) What about me? I mean, they they got their stuff. What about my stuff? They got promoted. What about my promotion? They got the, the awesome marriage. What about my Marriage. Um, there's a, a silly saying that goes something like this you, you have to love yourself before you love other people. Right? Listen, we don't have any problem loving ourselves. Okay? Um, now, a, as a disclaimer, um, what Paul is not saying is that we have to be a people of. Self-hatred, that's not what he's saying. Paul knows that he is loved by God and a son of God. There is no self-hatred in Paul whatsoever. What he's saying is we need to lower ourselves to to promote other people. That's what he's saying. So, do you compare yourself to others and become bitter when you don't measure up? These are painful questions for me too, okay? (laughs) Here's another one. Do you despise when other people get theirs? And do you secretly delight when someone fails? That's conceit. That's conceit. Now, he says, look not to your own interests, but also look to the interests of others. Okay, This could could be, look not just to your finances, but look to the finances of other people. Don't, Don't just look to your precious time your personal time, but look to the time of other people. Don't just look to your talents. Look to the talents of other people. Don't just look to your house. Don't just look to your car. Don't just look to your, okay? But, but look to the interests of other people. Look to other people's finances. Look to other people's so that you, again, are lowering yourself to promote and raise them up. This is the otherly focus that the Apostle Paul is wanting us to walk into, to step into, to be other-minded, to be others-focused, so that we we become a humble people, and and a humble people creates unity, and unity creates advancement for the gospel. That's that's what he's wanting to see. A group of people that is willing to say, listen, church, everything that I have is yours. And, And everyone starts saying that. You start, what you have is, is mine, and what I have is, and, and we're, we're together in this. That's what the Apostle Paul is wanting us to see. Now, that's the goal. The goal is to be a bunch of humble people. That's the goal. Now, now he's gonna show us the example. Okay? I want you to be humble people. I want you to be eager to give stuff away, to, to help other people. Um, I, I want to see you do that. Now, I want to show you the, the greatest example of a person who did that, who gave everything away for the benefit of other people. The man, Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at verses five through eight. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That this text takes Christ and and pushes him down, 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 in humility, that this is a three step downward towards humble living. Did you see that there, there's three steps here? There is humility in heaven, humility in his incarnation, and humility in his death. Let, let's take this text apart. Okay, so have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, or look down at the footnote. If you, have, if you do have an ESV, um, look down at the footnote, um, or, or which was also in Christ. So have this mind, which is yours in Christ, or have this mind, which is also in Christ. What, what does that mean, have this mind? He, he's saying, think this way. Think this way. Or let this be your worldview. That's what he's saying. Okay, what way does he want us to think? Okay, he wants us to think like Jesus. Which, number one, Jesus' humility in heaven. He was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, okay? Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He was in the form of God, the same being, the same form. That's what that is saying, that, that if you were to, in eternity past, see the Trinitarian Godhead, you would see Jesus in the same brilliant majesty as God the Father and God the Spirit. He's in the same form. They're of the same being, okay? So Jesus is God, but what was rightfully his, he set aside and did not grasp it or avail himself to it fully. This is why in John 17, five, Jesus prays this prayer. He says, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the world existed, okay? So the, the question is, what does Jesus do with his equality with God? He sets it aside. He sets it aside, okay? This is the theological understanding of ontological equality and economic subordination, meaning he, he is totally equal with God the Father, okay? Now, now, we're stepping into a place to where we're now disagreeing with Jehovah's Witnesses. We're disagreeing with Mormonism. We're disagreeing with every other world religion, okay? we believe that Jesus Christ is equal with God. But what he does is, even though he's equal to him, what Jesus does is he submits himself to God the Father, and that's why in the garden he prays, not my will, but your will be done. So just because he submits to him doesn't mean he's not equal with him. Does that make sense? You guys tracking with me? Okay, so though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with him a thing to be grasped. Okay, so even in heaven, he is submitting himself. Even when he's in heaven, he is humble. So let's look at the next step down into humility, his humility in his incarnation. It says, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Now, Some have wrongfully taught that when Jesus comes, he sets aside his godness or he sets aside his deity in the sense that when he comes and lives as a man, he's just man and he's not God. No. And they would actually point to this text and see, see, he emptied himself, meaning he was no longer God when he was here on earth. And we say absolutely not. What that means is actually modified by the back part of the text. Look back at it again. It says, but he emptied himself. Okay, how did he empty himself? By taking on the form of a servant. It doesn't mean that he stopped being God. It means that he didn't avail himself fully to all of his deity-ness. Does that make sense? Okay, here's a good example. Um, I play with my daughter Lydia a lot. Um, And her favorite game right now is for me to chase her. Uh, to tackle her onto the ground and tickle her until she can barely breathe, okay? That's her favorite game right now. Now, I don't avail myself to the fullness of my power. <laughs> Does that make sense? I, I don't, um, you know, fully tackle her with the full force that I could. Th- that would be bad, okay? I don't chase her as fast as I can run, um, and I don't tackle her as hard as I could tackle her. Now, does that mean that I don't have that power? I do still have the power. I'm just not availing myself to it. Okay. So this is what Jesus does in his humility. He, he humbles himself. He doesn't avail himself or give himself fully over to all that is rightfully his. Okay. Jesus was fully man, but he wasn't merely man. He, he took onto himself what he was not. He took onto himself humanity while maintaining who he was fully God. Again, uh, this is incredible. You have, to, you have to see how incredible it is that he took the form of a lowly servant. He was God, the creator of the universe. He could have exploded onto the scene with sounding trumpets and, and fireworks and riding a giant white horse and declaring, I am God, worship me. But he takes on the form of a servant, is born in a lowly manger, is raised by peasants, he says, birds and foxes have homes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. That This is the lowly form that Jesus took on. I want you to understand that every step Jesus took was a step of humility. Every breath that he breathed into his lungs was a breath of humility. Every iota of information that he had to learn was an act of humility. He was humble in heaven. He was humble here on earth. And then stepping down to the third and lowest step of Jesus' humility, he was humble even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, what Paul is doing here is he's not emphasizing the pain that was endured on the cross. Listen incredibly painful. As a matter of fact, the word excruciating means from the cross. That's what that word literally means. It was incredibly excruciating. What Paul is emphasizing here is the shameful way that Jesus was killed. The shameful way being stripped naked in front of a crowd of people and beaten and mocked. They would often put the cross at face level so that people could mock you and spit at you as you sat there naked and and bleeding out, and you would often, people who were on the cross would, would often move in and out of consciousness, losing control of their bodily functions. This was an incredibly humiliating death. I mean, th- think about it. The, the Gospels could have ended this way. And the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees surrounded Jesus you know, with the Roman guards, and they all swooped in, and Jesus drew his sword and says, you'll never take me alive, and goes out with a bang. That's not how the story goes. Jesus leans into humility and steps down down, down, and humbles himself to the most humiliating death there is. History tells us that Roman citizens didn't even say the word cross because it was a profanity. They didn't say the word cross because it was so humiliating. And it wasn't until years and years and years later that Christians actually took the symbol of the cross because it was profane. You, you, you didn't talk about it, you didn't look at it, you didn't say anything about it. It's, it's disgusting. And this was the death that God Himself endured. Now, the the press here from the Apostle Paul is: don't look to your own interests, be like Jesus, He is our great example. Don't look to your own interests, but be eager, be willing to give up everything that you have in order to be a benefit to other people. Jesus himself humbled himself, humbled himself, humbled himself. He laid his very life down and gave it as a ransom for many. So be like Jesus. That's what he wants you to do. He wants you to be humble just like Jesus was humble. Now, does anyone find that incredibly difficult? <laughs> So again, this week, as I'm looking at the amount of humility that the text is calling for, I'm just incredibly convicted, incredibly convicted, because I know my areas of pride in my life. I know my areas of pride. I get, I get called out for pride all the time. So the question is, how? How? I mean, it it sounds, I mean, the text couldn't be more clear. Verse four again, let each of you not look to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Be otherly minded. Here, let me give you the example. Jesus, he humbled himself, humbled himself, humbled himself. Do that. Oftentimes, I find myself, again, wanting to move out of selfish ambition. Exactly what this is telling you not to do. That's what I want to do. Again, why does he say Don't do things out of selfish ambition because we're prone to do things out of selfish ambition. So how do we walk in humility? How do we live this life of humility modeled after our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Go back to verse one. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, And sympathy. Okay, he's not questioning whether those are realities or not. What he's doing is he's trying to draw the Philippian mind to remember those things. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, he wants in, in their minds to go, yes, there is encouragement in Christ. And as a matter of fact, I'm thinking of a specific way Christ has encouraged me right now. If there's any comfort from love, yes, Absolutely. I have been comforted from God's love. Is there any participation in the Spirit? Yes, I I totally remember this particular time, and and man, just I could feel the Spirit working and moving. He's saying, meditate on this. Okay, okay. So, if there's any encouragement from Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, in there we have two members of the Trinity. Who's missing? Who's missing? The Father, right? So, any encouragement in Christ, comfort, love, participation in the Spirit. Actually, no one is missing. The, the Father is implied there. That this is the act of a Trinitarian God. He's calling our minds to meditate on the work of the Trinity. So, comfort in Christ right? Encouragement in Christ. Comfort from God the Father and participation in the Spirit in your salvation. He then pulls us down to meditate on God's love for us. Look at the end of it. If there's any affection and sympathy, that word can also be translated as mercies. He's saying meditate on God's love for you meditate on God's love for you. Meditate on the fact that Jesus Christ has come, that God the Father sent his only son to come and to live the life that we should have lived. How did he live that life? Well, empowered by the Spirit. Then he goes to the cross and dies the death that we should have died. He does all of that out of his love for you. And if he hadn't have come, you'd be totally lost. Listen, here's here's what he's wanting you to see. He wants you to see your utter dependence on God. He, he's saying, you want to be humble? Meditate on your utter dependence on God. That's how to walk in humility, is to see our utter dependence on God, to see I am often self-centered, concerned only with myself, prideful, and looking out for number one, but God has poured his affections and his mercies on me. While meditating on the love of the triune God that he has for me, it shifts to how much he loves me and asking the question, if God has poured all of this love on me and if God has poured all of this mercy on me and if God has encouraged me and, and he's comforted me, how can I not serve other people? If God has done all of this for me, why wouldn't I want to lay down my own interests for the interests of other people? If I know all that I have and all that I am is utterly dependent on God, then how in the world can I look down my nose at anyone else? It, it sounds crazy now, doesn't it? <laughs> it sounds crazy to be prideful or to insist your own way and to look down your nose at anyone else knowing that I am nothing without him. That when I see a brother and sister in Christ, I know that the same grace that had to save me saved them. They're a son or a daughter of God just like I'm a son and a daughter or a a son of God. Not a daughter, that's weird. To, To see someone that's lost and know that the only reason I'm not like them is because of the work of God. I I don't get to look down my nose at them and say, well, God picked me for his team because I'm just that good looking. So he wants us to meditate on God's love and when we see our utter dependence on God, that is a pride killer. Focusing on our dependence on him kills pride, creates humility, which creates unity, which moves the gospel forward. Now, as verses 5 through 8 took the Lord Jesus and moved him down, down, down in humility, verses 9 through 11 will be the upward swing and the soaring to his exaltation. Okay, So we moved him down in humility, humility in heaven, humility in incarnation, humility in his death. Now we're going to see him exalted, exalted, exalted. We're going to see him exalted high above everyone else, that he gets a name that's above every name, that that every knee bows and that every tongue confesses. That's the three steps back to his exaltation. Let's take a look at verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here is what this is saying. All presidents and all rulers of the earth Bill Gates and all the wealthy, all the poor and the forgotten and the drug dealers and the slumlords and the businessmen and the tradesmen and stay-at-home moms will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Believers in him like John Piper and Billy Graham will confess that Jesus is Lord. Atheists like Bill Maher and Bertrand Russell will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So as we saw him stoop low, low, low in humility, this text says, because of his humility, because of Christ's humility, he is soared to the highest place of exaltation, so high that every one who has ever lived and will ever live at one point will bow the knee. He is the king over all other kings. He is the Lord over all other lords. And no one who has ever existed, that, that was the above the, the earth, below the earth, everything in between, everyone who's ever existed will bow the knee and say with their mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord. My question for you today is, with what heart will you say it? Will you joyfully confess glad because Jesus is your Lord? You have lived your life in service to him. You've lived your life in service to other people. And on that day when you bow the knee and confess with your mouth Jesus Christ is Lord, will your heart sing and be glad? Or will you confess it woefully, having missed it, denied it, rejected it, doubted it, and refused it on your way to the place that is rightfully yours? Eternal separation from him in a real place called hell. Now, what the Apostle Paul is wanting us to see here in this text, okay? Look back at it. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name. What he's wanting us to see is the glorified Christ for sure, and he wants us to see that the way to glory for us is a life of humility. The way to glory for you is a life of humility. Now, that sounds interesting. Wait, the the way to selflessness is thinking about being rewarded? That doesn't sound very selfless at all. If I'm only being humble here on the earth just to get glory in heaven, that sounds very selfish and not very humble. Unless... Look back at the very end of verse 11. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Watch this. To the glory of God the Father. If your glory in heaven glorifies God, it's not selfish for you to want to be glorified in heaven. So when he returns and he calls you and you enter into his presence and and you are fully glorified, no more sin, no more shame, no more crying, no more tears, your fully glorified body praising and worshiping the king, you have been glorified and your glorification brings him glory. And the way to that glorified body, the way to being glorified in heaven is here on this earth a life of humility. That glory here on this earth, or seeking glory here and now, robs you of heaven. It robs you of glory there. So the, the believer is to look forward to his reward. The believer is to live a life of, of, of selfless sacrifice constantly for other people. To, to give it all away so that when we enter into the kingdom of heaven, he says, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. And we cast our crowns at his feet. So, let me close with this. Satan wants disunity at Gospel Community Church. Satan wants nothing more than for Gospel Community Church to be filled with prideful people, constantly jockeying for position, constantly trying to one-up one another, constantly gossiping about each other, That's what Satan wants. He doesn't want a group of humble people just just giving their lives away for each other. He doesn't want a group of humble people because humility will produce unity because when we're all saying, I'm gonna give my whole life away to you and for this church to see the gospel advance, when that happens, Jesus is glorified and Satan doesn't want that. So I'm asking you today to repent of pride. The, the way to know that you're prideful is to think to yourself, I'm not prideful. So I, I don't think anyone gets out of this. I, I, I don't think anyone can, can boldly, pridefully say, I'm humble. I have arrived at humility. So today, would, would you just ask the Holy Spirit to reveal the areas in your heart of pride? Pride? To, to reveal the areas to where you've been working out of selfish ambition? Would you ask the Holy Spirit to show you in your heart where you've been conceited, to where you, you haven't wanted to repent, you, you haven't wanted to, um, to, to, to leverage what you have to, to see the people in this church lifted up? Would you ask the Holy Spirit to show you that? Then would you repent and begin to meditate on God's love for you? meditate on I am nothing without him how, how can I look down my nose at anyone how can I walk in pride when all that I have is given to me by him and then once you've repented and meditated would, would you just thank him just th- thank you God for, for all that you've done for me thank you for who you are and, and for what you've done I want more than anything for this church to be known as, man, those people are humble people. Those people are unified people who love Jesus. That's what I want for Gospel Community Church. Let me pray. Father, I, I openly repent um, of, of my pride um, which so often gets in the way Uh, Father, I I ask for forgiveness um, for for areas that I've led poorly in this. Father, would you just forgive me of of walking in pride and and not walking in humility to to where I, I think I'm owed or deserved this or that? Father, would you help me? Would you send your Holy Spirit to constantly remind me that all that I have and all that I am is wrapped up in you, and, and and that there's there's no <laughs> there's no level for me to stand on. I can I, I have no platform to stand on and look down at anyone. All I can do is cling to the cross. All I can do is cling to the cross and the work that you've done. Father, would you make this church a people of of humility? Would you make this church a, a people who are humble and that humility creates unity and that unity is moved outward towards gospel advancement? Would, would, you, would you make that a reality here at this church? We love you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.